0: Hello, good. good morning. I think it's still the morning, isn't it? Uh, I'm Ricky Ferguson and I work for Wycliffe Bible Translators and the Northern Ireland team leader. Uh, and it's great to be here and to share with you. Um, I'd like to start by showing and, and discussing different ways in which Jesus engaged with people in a way they could understand and relate to. One of the ways Jesus engaged with people was through identifying with their physical needs. He identified with their pain their hunger, their thirst, their sadness, their loneliness. And he was able to do this because he became fully human, just like us, so that he could identify with our physical needs and understand what it was like to suffer. There are many examples in Mark's Gospel, which we're focusing on today, of how Jesus met people at the point of need. But I like to focus on two occasions recorded at the same time, in Mark chapter 5, verse 21 to 43, if you like to open it up uh, before you or swipe your phones or tablets or whatever you do. Um, it's a account of Jairus's daughter uh, and the woman with the bleed. I'm not going to read it, but rather just point uh, to various things as we, as we go through the story. Jairus was a man... Who was a real breaking point? His precious little girl was dying. I think this must be one of the the lowest points in life. To lose one of your own children just doesn't seem natural. So out of the depths of anguish and pain, Jairus comes and throws himself at Jesus' feet, pleading with Jesus to do something to heal his daughter and Jesus immediately goes with them and responds to his need and and walks with them. The woman in the story has been enduring a bleed for 12 years. She has tried everything and has spent all the money she has on different doctors and, and medication but it's only got worse. If that wasn't bad enough, this physical ailment, this bleed also made her unclean in Jewish law. Therefore, she wasn't able to worship God in the synagogue or in the temple for that time. So this was very spiritually limiting for her. She wasn't able to practice her faith because of this illness. And not only that, if she touched someone else, they'd be unclean as well, which made her a social outcast. Like a leper. It's very hard to imagine to put herself in the shoes of, of how she must have felt. She had suffered physically and spiritually and socially, but having heard about Jesus, she didn't expect him to even to speak to her. But she knew that even if she just managed to even just touch the very hem of his garment, that she'd be healed. We've seen in both these cases how these two people were, were in great need. But how Jesus met and engaged with them at their point of need. I want to point out three things, three ways in which Jesus engaged. Firstly, he wasn't distracted by the bustling crowds that were all around him. But he saw the needs of the individuals that were around him. When he decided to go with Jairus to, to heal his daughter... He wasn't so single-minded that he, that he didn't notice that somebody touched his, his garment or that somebody else was, was in need. Uh, I know I don't know about you, but if that had been me, I would have been so single-minded and going to help this man that I wouldn't have noticed the needs of others around me. But yet Jesus noticed and stopped and spoke tenderly to this woman. He didn't see it as inconvenience to his ministry, but rather part of his ministry. Secondly, he had compassion on both people, both the woman and Jairus, in their suffering without concern for his own personal uh, consequences or social consequences to to him going with them. With the woman touching him, that would have made him unclean by Jewish law. And going to to visit a dead body would have made him unclean as well. But that didn't put him off. It didn't stop him from going and, and caring for these people's needs but rather he made them clean through his power of healing them. And thirdly, I want to point out that he saw past people's physical needs, the thing that that he saw first, he saw past that, their spiritual needs. He said to the woman, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from from your suffering. In saying this, Jesus shows that he sees past people's ailments and rather focuses on on what's behind and the whole person. When the men came to to tell Jairus that his daughter died, Jesus said, don't be afraid, just believe. Jesus knew what Jairus needed spiritually. He needed to trust Jesus was in control even though his daughter died and that he could heal him and that death didn't stop it. Now please don't understand me. I'm not saying in this that if you have enough faith that, you're, that people will always be healed or that, that nothing ever everything bad will happen if you, if you have faith. But rather I'm saying that Jesus sees the need of a whole person, both physical and spiritual, and he's interested in meeting people at that point of need of both physical and spiritual. In this story, these two individuals, Jesus met them uh, and engaged with them in the way they needed it. He showed us, in doing this, he showed us how we should live as far as of him, engaging with people around us with compassion, not worried about our own um, consequences, but engaging with people who who need to hear more about Jesus. I'd like to hand over to Tim, who's going to explore some other passages and how Jesus engaged with people through it. Thanks.
1: Okay, so I want to look um, towards the end um, of the book of Mark, um, from chapter 14 onwards. And this is the the period in time in Jesus' life when he is brought before the Pharisees, he's dragged before the Roman authorities, and he's placed before the Roman soldiers. And there's this um, very direct and blunt question that Jesus is asked by the high priest in chapter 14. He asks Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. A very direct question. Are you the Christ, yes or no? Jesus essentially condemns himself by what he says here. The ramifications of this answer that Jesus gave were clear to everyone there. So should Jesus answer the high priest with an acknowledgement of his deity, of his status as God, his execution was inevitable. Jesus was well aware along with everyone else in the crowd that to give the true answer would result in certain death by crucifixion under the false conviction that Jesus was blaspheming against God. And the gravity of sheer hostility um, An unpopularity this answer brought was clear. His blunt acknowledgement of the truth of who Jesus was birthed so much anger, so much hatred in the Pharisees that they would spit on him, they would punch him, they would condemn him as worthy to die. Such anger and hatred faced Jesus based on his answer to this one question, Are you the Christ? Are you the saviour? And I think for any normal human, um, for any Christian, when posed with this same question, which is essentially, is Jesus your saviour? Is Jesus God? Is Jesus the only way to forgiveness of sin? If we were posed this question under the same circumstances in which Jesus found himself, in which to give the same answer would result in certain death, surely there would be at least a temptation to give an answer which would in some way appease the Pharisees' anger. We can see this um, illustrated in a very real way um, when Peter denied Jesus. When asked about his relationship with Jesus, he disowns Jesus. He swears he doesn't know him when confronted with a group of people who opposed Peter's beliefs and deemed them worthy of persecution and death, he denies his knowledge of Jesus. He disowns his relationship with God and denies Jesus as his savior. So thankfully for us in Northern Ireland, we're probably never going to find ourselves in a a place of Persecution, where if we acknowledge Jesus as Lord, we'll be executed. But we all know that this is a very real reality for some Christians across the world. Christians are imprisoned, they're executed because of their faith in Jesus, because of their answer to this one question. Suffering for the gospel is a very real reality for many Christians across the globe. But for us here today, despite not facing the same brutal treatment. Um, that Jesus or, or the countless martyrs after him have faced, we must be aware of the lessons to be learned from the contrasting responses of Jesus and Peter. So when faced with a culture in Northern Ireland or Ireland or UK or wherever you're from, when faced with a culture that may not be as open to the truth of the gospel as it probably was in the past, which may not be open to scriptural truth, How do we react? Do we let a fear of rejection, a fear of unpopularity, a fear of increasing irrelevance in society, do we let these things lead us to a place where we dampen our passion for the truth found in Scripture? Do we adapt or change our message? Do we change our theological belief in order to appease everyone else around us? in order to remain relevant, in order to satisfy the requirements of the culture that we find ourselves in? Do we change our message and in doing so, remove the Bible of its prophetic truth and radical edge? Or do we feed off the example of Jesus and take courage from his bravery and communicate the gospel boldly and truthfully? Do we have the willingness to humbly, gently, and lovingly communicate scriptural truth to our society without molding it to suit the cultural tide we find ourselves in? Do we give a false translation of scripture to our society based on the cultural setting we find ourselves in? The second thing I want to pick up on is is the process of crucifixion and torture that Jesus went through. And we can read and mark that throughout all the humiliation... All the pain, throughout the execution that Jesus endured, he never once let his character become tainted. Tainted with a response fueled by hate or bitterness, even toward his accusers and torturers. In verse 65, chapter 14, he's spat at and punched, yet there's no violent revenge or lashing out. Verse 15, in the following chapter, the crowd shouts, crucify him but there's no resentment there's no defensiveness screamed back verse 18 the soldiers mock him and beat him but there's no retribution verse 25 he's nailed to a cross yet there's no ounce of hatred shown to his executors and it is true that God will eventually hold all sin to account and these actions will be accounted for But at this point in time, we have Jesus, God himself, but also man, showing such love, mercy, and grace to those around him by taking the form of a humble servant, willingly subjecting himself to mockery, torture, and execution for the sake of others. So this was Jesus, who could have called on 12 legions of angels to come and rescue him, what an awesome sight that would have been. But he willingly allowed himself to be spat on by a group of people who he had created, but who had no interest in what he had to say. We are called to imitate the character of Christ. His love, his humility, his unswerving commitment to the gospel message and the truth found in the Bible. The opposition we face to the message of Jesus is minute when compared with what he and countless others have suffered as a result. But we all know um, in our own social circles, and our own work contexts, how tempting it can be to to confirm or conform to societal norms, um, or even to, to lash out in the midst of adversity or questioning or um, issues which we we were passionately disagree with in society. It's easy to let our character become tainted with bitterness in society. But we must be consistently examining our witness, our message, our communication to ensure that it's modelled on the incredible example set by Jesus. Um, so, Ricky, if you want to come back up. <laughs>
2: We've had the Bible in English for over 600 years, but what if we didn't? What if God's Word had never been translated into English? What if we couldn't understand God speaking to us through it? The Bible changes lives, but only if we can understand it. Right now, 1.5 billion people in the world don't have the Bible in their language because it hasn't been translated yet. To them, it's as if God doesn't speak their language. Through the work of Bible translation many people have parts of the Bible, but how will people come to know God without knowing John 14 6, or Psalm 23, or Genesis 1? It's time to change this. We long to see every person have access to God's Word, so we work with churches and Christians around the world, translating the Bible into the languages people understand best teaching people to read so they can read the Bible and helping people to apply God's word to their lives. We do all this so that just like us, people can be transformed through hearing God speak to them in their language. They need you to be part of this work. Go, give, pray.
0: So in this section we'd, we'd like to kind of share how the impact that may, that happens when, when you engage with people in the language and in the culture um, that's relevant to them. Uh, we've just heard in the video that 1.5 billion people don't have access to the Bible in a language they understand best today. As the video said, the Bible changes lives but only if we can understand it. Then I love to tell you a story of the impact of God's Word is having on people's lives. The story comes uh, from Northern Cameroon. Um, translator Lee Bramlett, I on the right slide, um, was struggling to relate the gospel to the ED people in a meaningful way. Then one day God prompted Lee um, to look again at the ED word for love. Lee had learned through his linguistic analysis, which I'm not going to go into, that, that, that there's three ways, three different verb endings that every word, every verb ended in, either I, A, or you. But when Lee looked at the word for, the ED word for love, there was no U verb ending. So being a good linguist, he was asking, why is there no U ending when there is with every other verb? So got he together, got together and asked the ED Translation Committee, which included the most influential leaders of the community and the best speakers of the language. And he asked them, could you DV your wife using the I ending? They said, yes. That would mean that the wife had been loved, had been loved but the love was gone. Then he said, could you DV your wife using the A ending? And they said, "Yes, that kind of love depended on your wife's actions. It was conditional love. It would depend on that she, that she loved you as long you would continue to love her as long as she remained faithful and cared for you uh, and looked after you. And then they asked them, "Could you devote your wife?" And everyone laughed. "Of course not," they said. "You can't say that. You'd have to keep on loving your wife, even though she didn't make you dinner, didn't go get you water. Even if she was unfaithful, you'd still be compelled to love her. That type of love just doesn't exist. But Lee sat for a while, thinking of John 3.16, and then he asked these men, could God devoe people? There was complete silence for three or four minutes. Then tears trickled down the faces of these weathered, these these elderly men. Finally, they responded, Do you know what this would mean? This would mean that God kept loving us over and over again, millennium by millennium, while all the time we rejected his great love. He is compelled to love us, even though we've sinned more than any people. See, one simple vowel, and the meaning changed from I love you based on what you do, to I love you based on who I am and what I do. The meaning changed from conditional love to unconditional love. See, God had encoded encoded his story of unconditional love in this people's language. For centuries this little word was there, unused, but available, grammatically correct, and perfectly understandable. When the word was finally spoken, it called into question everything, this entire the entire belief system of this people. If God was like that, did they need the evil spirits? Uh, do they need people to intercede for them with their with their ancestors' spirits? Do they need sorcery? Many answered no, and the Christ followers in that community grew from a few hundred to several thousand. The New Testament is now available in E D language, so E D people can feel the impact of passages like Ephesians five twenty five, husbands, devote your wives as Christ devoted the church unconditionally see all around the world today community by community where am I? community by community when God's word is translated people are gaining access to this great love story about how God so deluded us that he gave his one and only son so, so we could be made right with him See, the cross changes everything. The cross changes everything. Can you hear an amen? amen? We may don't do that in New horizon, but but the cross changes everything and that's central to Bible translation, the cross, the gospel. And that's why Bible translation is so important. As we have seen seen that in language, there, I don't know whether the diagrams there. the the language in, no, I think a copy across the um, There's a huge, as we've seen, there's a huge gap between between language in the original and Greek and Hebrew, biblical languages, and the language that people need to receive it in. And there's a huge gap there. But the translation process bridges that gap so that people can receive God's word in their own language. We had to have that ourselves. We had to have someone translate the, old te- the, the, the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into English so we can be transformed and grow in our faith and love for the Lord. And so do people, There's 1.5 billion people around the world today, they need the, God's word to be translated into their own language so that they can experience God for themselves and grow in their faith and love and reach out to their community, crossing their own cultural barrier with God's, God's word and God's good news to reach their own people. Tim is going to come along and talk now about another obstacle uh, that uh, with engaging people with the gospel.
1: Thank you. Okay, so I just want to uh, think for a bit about, about translation, but from a different angle. Um, so how do we translate what we read in Scripture into a worldview? into how we view other people, into how we view government, politics, into how we view society. Um, How do we take scripture and form a worldview which is coherent with God's desire for human flourishing? So just as we need to translate scripture into other languages in a careful and prayerful manner, we need to form our worldview, our beliefs about society, or outward witness in accordance with Scripture after careful prayer and thought. So just as um, a mistaken language translation could carry a huge ripple effect for many people who are reading the Bible but don't know God, one letter can make a massive difference in how people relate to God if they get the translation wrong by one letter. But likewise, a worldview or a belief system which is inconsistent with careful scriptural and prayerful thinking can lead to massive misinterpretation by the people we engage with about who God is and what the gospel is all about. People can get a totally different uh, mindset or way of thinking about who God is if we don't have a correct translation of scripture in a way that they can understand and relate to. And we can see that since the birth of Christianity, countless Christians have sought to interpret what they read in Scripture into a worldview which glorifies God and seeks the welfare of humanity around them. And whenever we here take Scripture, whenever we allow it to form our witness, to form our interaction with the world around us, we can help to shape and mold the society we live in and i think we can be encouraged by the influence and the role that christianity has played but also learn the lessons from the the major mistakes that have been made in the christian church if we look throughout history we can see this picture being painted that christianity has and can continue to make an impact in society whenever we take scripture enlightened by his holy spirit and empowered by his spirit, and interpret that into our society in a way that others can understand and relate to. But we do need to be aware that there are times when um, Christians, um, certain parts of the church, have clearly veered away from portraying an an accurate interpretation of scripture. They've translated the nature of God um, in a slightly flawed way to those around them. So whether that's through how the Christian church has maybe treated other religions in the past, and um, maybe that's through corruption in the church, maybe that's through violence, we haven't always lived up to the wonderful potential and commission that Jesus has given his people. We've sometimes given an incorrect translation of the gospel to others around us. And I think as Christians today, we too are vulnerable to making the same mistake. And we'll never be perfect. Um, We all know that. There's always going to be differences. There's always going to be disagreements, not only between church and the rest of society, but also inside of church. We all know that. Um, But what I do think we can draw on, what we can all agree on, is that at its foundation and core, Christianity, what we read in scripture, carries this framework for society which promotes the flourishing of others through growing closer to God. So whenever we translate this well to others who don't know Jesus, it can be a very powerful witness to them about who God is, about what he thinks about us as human beings, and how he wants his people to act And whenever we look through history, we can see specific ways in which this has been manifested in Western society, several key areas of society that we really value today. Nick West is an author, and he works for Theos, which is a religious think tank um, based in London. He wrote a book called The Evolution of the West, looking at how Christianity has shaped the society we live in today. And he writes, Sometimes subtly, sometimes accidentally, sometimes egregiously, the role of Christianity in forming Western values that we hold dear is rewritten or forgotten. So let's not forget that Christianity has done such a good job. The church has actually done well in forming and helping to mold the society we live in. And whilst we can't claim that the Christian church is solely responsible for moral reform in society, It was Christianity, or more specifically, Jesus Christ, um, who caused a change in trajectory for how people thought about what it means to be human. It proposed a new way to think of identity, one not based on social roles or status, but on relationship with God. People were human beings with inherent worth, regardless of their class or upbringing. Um, one example of this is sexual liberty, um, which probably isn't a phrase that many people would associate with the Christian church today. Um, but at the dawn of the church, it was, it was Christians that preached this radical notion that a woman's body was actually her own, um, not simply an object for men, that her individual will mattered, and that duties in marriage were mutual to males as well as females. So we've got worth of the individual we have got welfare of the poor. we have got gender equality. These are still some of the issues we're grappling with in society today. But all those years ago, these were issues that Christians have been concerned about tackling in society. This is because they've taken what they've read in Scripture and they've wanted to translate that to their wider society in a way that they can understand to make an impact for good in their community. More recently, um, think of William Wilberforce. He was a regular Christian man. He was deeply convicted that the slavery he was seeing in his society did not match with the desires of God he read about in Scripture. He read about a God who loved justice, who loved freedom from oppression. So he sought to communicate his scriptural beliefs or translate what he read in Scripture in such a way that other people who weren't Christians could get behind, rally behind, and understand. And in doing so, he led the campaign which would go on to abolish the slave trade in most of the British Empire in the 19th century. There is power in communicating Scripture effectively to society. And The organization I work for, CARE, that's exactly what we want to continue doing and we want to interpret scripture to our government, communicate scriptural truth to wider society in order that they might glean um, an accurate portrayal of the character of God. Um, in some cases, this leads to major success. Um, for example, the Human Trafficking and Exploitation Act, which was uh, made law here in 2015. So we had CARE, a Christian organization being the primary advisors to an MLA who was pushing that through Stormont, which was unanimously, almost unanimously voted for by every party. So this was Christians using their scriptural convictions, communicating it in a way that other people could actually understand and relate to and having major success at the other end. Um, But we do need to be aware that... um, An accurate translation of scriptural belief doesn't always end in success or or applause. Um, Our scriptural beliefs won't always evoke a favorable response from society, no matter how accurately we convey them. There's always going to be elements of our message that are unpopular. There's always going to be elements of our message that are controversial in society. Um, But that's the nature of the world we live in and the nature of the sin which has corrupted it. So it's not our job to ensure that everyone agrees with the Bible, that everyone agrees with Christian belief, but it is our job to ensure that we are painting an accurate picture of God's character and the gospel through how we communicate our scriptural beliefs. Um, So I'll pass over to Ricky for some personal application.
0: So we've we've talked about how Jesus engaged with people, uh, and cross barriers, and how different stories of how we can uh, cross barriers, uh, both language and cultural. But what what day to day can we can we do um, uh, to to cross those barriers of culture and language and engage with people like Jesus did? Um, we come from a very privileged position uh, here. We've had the Bible in English for 600 years, and we've over 500, maybe more, versions in English, and a whole raft of, of resources to help us understand and share the gospel with others. Yet 1.5 billion people in the world today don't even have God's Word, the very bedrock of our faith, uh, and the center of our faith in their own language. I'd like you to close your eyes for a minute. Uh, if, I've, if that weirds you out, don't worry, but just kind of in your mind's eye, imagine yourself in your house and go around your different rooms in your house um, go in the living room and maybe the picture of the Bible beside your, your, your armchair, um, go up the stairs the one beside your bed, um, maybe outside the one you have in your car, in the glove compartment, the wee, uh New Testament and Psalms um, Go round your house again, see all the resources you have. Bible reading notes, commentaries, um, apologetic books that help you understand different issues in our world today and obstacles to uh, questions of Christianity. You can open your eyes again. It's quite a lot, isn't there? Well, I meant to do this other day and then I forgot. So I got my parents to do it and bring up some of their Bibles and resources they have around their house. So I'm going to take us off because if I walk away, there's it won't be recorded. Um, there we go. So you've probably been you've probably been wondering why on earth there's two boxes at the front. So um, just going through New Testament and Psalms NIV. Um, then, New King James Bible The Message Good News Bible uh, New Living Translation with Life Application notes in it devotional notes to help you understand God's word uh, a New Living Translation Bible at the bottom that's ordered uh, in 365 days so that you can read through the Bible in a year um, with various books um, I went to the bookshop and and asked to borrow some books, uh, to just to show you what was available, um, That's nothing there. So, there's Convinced by Scripture, so a biography about uh, Martin Luther and how Scripture was a bedrock of, of everything he did and the convictions he came to, um, there's a book on suffering uh, and what the Bible has to say about suffering and how we live with that. Um, A book that Tim says is fantastic. He's read it, I haven't, about being counter-culture in this world uh, and sharing our faith through that. Um, God's Big Picture by Vaughan Roberts, which helps us to see the whole of Scripture and how it all fits together. The Reason for God by Tim Keller, um, which looks at the different questions people have of Christianity and how we might address them and answer them from a biblical perspective. That's just some of them. There's other Bible reading notes, uh, some for women, some for men. Um, ones by authors of the past, a book on Bible translation. list uh, goes on. There's just oceans of resources we have. And I'm not saying this to make you feel guilty about the resources you have, but rather to take those resources and to ask yourself the question, how can I use what the abundance we have in English, both in God's Word and in the resources we have, and how can I use that to impact the culture I have around me? So, can I give? Can I go to the bookstore this week and buy a book uh, that that a non-Christian friend would find helpful to engage with the Bible or to engage with different issues that they have and questions they have of faith? Um, could I use some of my finances to to help? Um, supply God's word to other people um, to create more access to resources worldwide uh, both locally and globally so people can engage with the gospel in a meaningful way or maybe it could go overseas uh, and be involved in mission work to to share the gospel with others uh, through Bible translation or through evangelism, church planting whatever so if if you have any questions afterwards about what we've talked about, please do come and speak to us. But Tim's going to come in and tease out just how we can engage with culture on uh, a deeper level. Thank you. Oh, sorry, one second. Sorry to steal your thunder. The purpose of Empty Box is to illustrate the resources that so many people have around the world compared to the,
1: the box that we have. Sorry. All right. Um, so I just want to look briefly at what can we do tomorrow? What can we do in work? What can we do in uni? What can we do in family and friends? How do we translate scripture to them? And I've got three, um, three quick kind of um, checks we can go through mentally when we're wanting to communicate something um, to a group of people in society, no matter who they are. And um, that's what, why, and how. It's so simple. Um, So let's start with what. What is it that we're saying? What is it that we're trying to communicate? We need to be humble enough to be willing to examine our worldview, examine our beliefs, examine our ethics, and assess them regularly to assure that they are in line with Scripture. Um, Very often... um, I think we hold beliefs. Um, We hold these convictions about things in society primarily because it's the belief system we've been immersed in our whole lives. We can be immersed in this belief system in family, um, in school, in college, in church. Um, And I think it's a really good and valuable thing to be immersed in Christian belief. It is extremely important to be immersed in Christian belief from a very young age. It's so beneficial. But we must make our beliefs our own. We must know why we think them. We need to become intimate with scripture so that we're able to co- clearly communicate why we believe certain things when we're asked. And um, Sometimes I'll do things with young adults or teenagers, and you'll find that um, the, the controversial issues would come up quite frequently, issues around um, sexuality or um, beginning, end-of-life ethics, things like that, which are on the news a lot. So naturally, they'll be on our young people's minds, and they'll know the Christian belief. But if someone um, who disagreed with them or who wasn't a Christian to approach them and ask them, well, okay, but why do you believe that? I don't think they'd be able to answer I think for a lot of us, we wouldn't know what to say. We'd know what we believe, but we wouldn't be able to give a reason for the faith that we have. And that's because we're not closely acquainted enough with Scripture. We need to know why we believe what we believe. We need to understand exactly what it is we're saying. The value of apologetics to our mission is invaluable. Being able to give a reason for why Christians believe what we believe I think scripture is robbed of its power whenever we can't explain to some degree why it's important, whenever we can't explain what it actually means for someone who's not been brought up with Christian language, who's not been brought up with scripture. I have a quite a few friends that I went to university with who aren't Christians. Um, And this this is a very extreme example, so no one would actually do this. But if I were to go to my friend Chris, who isn't a Christian, and say, Chris, I just want you to know that Jesus is your source of substitutionary atonement. Technically, that's true, but I may as well be speaking ancient Hebrew. He wouldn't have a clue what that means. I need to be willing and, and take the time and be able to unpack that in a simple and understandable way so that he can understand what it means. Because were he to just read that on a sign, it would make no impact in his life. It's been lost in translation. May as well be a different language. So we need to be able to take our beliefs and and work out how to communicate those with a culture who has maybe never heard them before, who's maybe never opened a Bible. This is a work of translation that we need to be involved in. And I think when we are able um, to communicate to our world why we view the world the way we view it, we'll be able to engage in any arena, whether that's politics, media, education. If we're able to compassionately and gently and humbly communicate our scriptural beliefs, we will have a role to play in society. The second thing I want to look at is why. Why are we speaking at all? What is our motivation for speaking in society? I think it's an easy trap to fall in for all of us, and we thought about this a bit at the start. But there are times when we can speak up about things we're concerned about, things we're deeply passionate about, things we know to be scripturally important, and we can speak out But that can be because we're feeling defensive. It can be coming from a place of bitterness or hostility. I think sometimes it can come from a simple dislike of the audience we're addressing. Uh, This is something that we are all vulnerable to, and it's something that we all need to be aware of. Whenever we communicate from a place of, of dislike or hatred or intolerance, we're not giving an accurate translation of Scripture to our society. It'll give the wrong message about God's heart toward humanity. So we need to assess why we're speaking. So, an extremely well-known passage in Matthew 22, when Jesus is asked, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? We've all heard this. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Such a well quoted scripture. But do we take this into account in every interaction we have with people who aren't Christians and who are Christians as well? This is like a, a really obvious statement to make, but if our interaction with anyone, Regardless of whether we agree with them or not, if our interaction is not obedient to both of these commands, then it's better if we don't speak at all. So if our interaction isn't communicating a deep love for God, that we love him with all of our heart, that we obey his scripture, that we won't compromise on it, but also that we have a deep love with the group that we're communicating to, that we will sacrifice for them, that we will give to them, that we will spend time with them and love them as God has loved us. If our interaction is not grounded in these two commands, then it is not Christian interaction, and it shouldn't be happening. So do our words adhere to this command? What about our social media posts? Does what we put on Facebook convey a love for God and a love for others? What about our conversations about Stormont? What about when we meet our MLAs? Does that convey a deep love for God and a deep love for our elected representatives? What about our interaction in school, in university, in work? The list goes on. What about with people we fiercely disagree with? Does our interaction with them convey a deep love for them and a deep love for God? And finally, um, I just want to think about how. How is it that we're engaging? Um, Tone is so vitally important in how we communicate as Christians. What tone are we taking? You can have the same message, this one message that we want to communicate to society, but you could communicate the exact same message in two different tones. One tone will result in a favorable response, and a totally opposite tone could result in, in, in total rejection and anger. So what tone are we taking in conversation? Colossians has a beautiful verse in chapter 4. It says, Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. I love this idea of seasoning our conversations. So even if we're not expressly talking about Christianity um, or Scripture all of our interaction can be seasoned with the gospel, seasoned with the grace of God, seasoned with a deep love for him and others. And there's sometimes that we can have the best intentions in saying something to others who don't share our beliefs. And we are, we are doing it out of a place of love. But from the other side, it can be taken completely the wrong way and misinterpreted because our tone wasn't right. Our tone needs to be one of compassion and love. Um, so Ricky, do you want to close for us in prayer? Um, just before it comes up, we've got some resources here at the front um, relating to what we've talked about today. Um, so please come and chat. Should we do the, ask about any questions? Yeah, if we just left a few minutes for a wee Q&A. If anyone does have any questions, feel free to stick your hand up. Or not, that's okay as well. Okay, Ricky, do you want to come pray for us?
0: Father God, I thank you for, for this gospel that we have to proclaim. Thank you that you reached into our lives and you saved us and you brought us into new life in you. And you've given us this message of, of salvation in you a new life in you to proclaim. I pray that we would do that in a way that is engaging with our culture, but that wouldn't that wouldn't distract or or that we wouldn't change your message, but that we would that we would convey it in a in a compassionate and a loving way. Um, so, Father, I pray that we would go away and we would we would think about what we've heard, and then we'd go and we'd use. Uh, the situations we find ourselves in to convey your message of salvation and to share your gospel with everyone we meet um, in a way that is accessible and engaging with them. So Father, I thank you for being with us and for guiding us and part us with your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.